Our Father and our God, we understand that so much of what we struggle with is the result of our prayerlessness. Indeed, there is a, uh, a, an enormous vacuum in the hearts of so many believers, including this one, uh, because we have failed you, failed to take you up on your invitation that we uh, can indeed have access through Christ to the very throne room of heaven. And I pray, Father, in these troubled days in which we find ourselves as, a, as individuals, as an economy, as a nation, and even a world, that your people might be found praying. Father, um, we, are, we continue our enormous concern over our country. We thank you for the, uh, the brother that's in the White House, and we pray for him and pray that you will guard him from foolishness, from getting and receiving bad counsel, and that you will use him to lead not only this country, but the world in its attack and war on terrorism. Father, protect us. Uh, might these days be a, a, a very turning point in the life of the church of Jesus Christ as she realizes that she must repent and she must return to her first love. And I pray, Lord God, that you will find that, if no place else on the planet, that you'll find it at Grace Evangelical Church. People serious about their souls, serious about their sin, and oh so gripped with the importance of these days. Oh, Holy Spirit of God, blow winds of revival all over this country. And might we as a church be useful to you in seeing men brought to the faith for the first time. Might men see Jesus Christ in all of his beauty and be drawn to him irresistibly. Now, Father, accept our gifts. We love to give them. It is our joy to sacrifice for the kingdom of God and pray that every dime of this will be used for one reason and one reason only, the advancement of the cause of Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you. To the book of Judges. Judges chapter 10. We'll begin reading what is a fairly lengthy portion of God's Word, beginning at verse 17 of chapter 10. You follow as I read. We're going to read all the way over through verse 33 of chapter 11, if you'll follow with me. As withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. I think that most of you know something about this story about Jephthah. I think at least his name might be a little bit familiar to you. He's one of those biblical characters whose story is fairly well-known, but unfortunately it is fairly well-known for many of the wrong reasons. Um, I, I'm afraid that, that the real point of his story is somehow missed or lost or ignored um, because of the event at the end of this chapter concerning his vow, his rash vow. In fact... If people know anything about Jephthah, it is normally uh, about the vow that they know. This rash vow that is mentioned in verse 
30 to the end of the chapter. That's the thing that has brought some degree of infamy to this man whose name is Jephthah. And that vow seems to overshadow the rest of this story concerning this man. What you get in verse 33 is a very brief, terse mention of the victory over the Ammonites. And then the focus immediately is placed on that vow. Uh, the author seems to be preoccupied with the vow and the, the, what comes of it, while the victory over the Ammonites is somewhat quickly dismissed uh, and placed in the back seat while we get on to talk about that vow. Now, gang, we're going to take a look at that vow, uh, Lord willing, next week. But it seemed important to me, at least, that we, that we slow down before we got to the vow so that we not miss what, what I consider to be the real point, the real point of the story, and it is not the vow. Um, there's, some, there's a great lesson concerning the vow, and as I said, Lord willing, we'll look at that next week. But there's something that I think is the real purpose behind the story of Jephthah, and that's what I want you to see this morning. Because the real purpose of the story about Jephthah has to do with how it is that Jephthah foreshadows for us the one who will come much later will be very, in some ways, similar to Jephthah, but in so many ways dissimilar to Jephthah, but the one who will also succeed where Jephthah failed. I want you to see this morning how it is that this person, Jephthah, foreshadows for us the coming of the New Testament, Jephthah, the one who is the grand deliverer, Jesus Christ himself. Gang, all of the, um, all of the judges in this book of Judges, and we're, we're fast getting to the close of the mention of Judges because after Jephthah comes the story of Samuel, Samson, who occupies several chapters, but... All of these judges, Othniel and Gideon, Jephthah and Samson, all of them were supposed to give you some idea about deliverance and the deliverer. And so many were flawed, as you know, but there is something, there was supposed to be something in each of them that pointed us to uh, the deliverer that would one day ultimately come and accomplish complete and ultimate deliverance. Of course, that being Jesus. And, and so many times the, the, the judges failed. But in their lives, there was supposed to be something that was redemptive in nature by which you and I and even the people of that day could learn something about the Deliverer. Think about this for a second. Imagine that you're living in the days of, in, in these days, the days of Jephthah, and as a citizen of Israel you had most assuredly heard snatches. Maybe you heard them from your parents. Maybe you heard it from your grandparents. Maybe you were at synagogue one day and you heard snatches about how Jehovah was going to someday provide a deliverer, a Messiah for you and your nation who would ultimately lead you to victory over all of your enemies. As early as the story about Abraham and Isaac, Genesis 22, you had heard of God, the one who would provide. Jehovah 
Jireh. You had heard of him all of your life, this God who was going to provide. And that promise, that promise that God would ultimately provide a deliverer was lodged in the heart of every Jew. And, and as they grew up in the centuries past, the longing for that Messiah increased over the centuries. So, if you were living in the days of the judges, and one of these judges arrived on the scene to bring about deliverance, you might be tempted to begin to wonder whether or not the present judge was the one about whom the Father had written earlier through Moses. Maybe this is he. Maybe, maybe the one who has delivered us from the Ammonites, maybe he's going to go on to be our Messiah and our ultimate deliverer. And of course, there was great disappointment in all these judges because they turned out not to be the one. But in every deliverer, there was something that perhaps you could learn about the deliverer who would, who would come and set your nation free. Now, you and I, we, because we have the advantage of the New Testament, we've, written, we've read about all this stuff in the New Testament concerning the deliverer. We can go back, because we have this advantage, we can go back and see, ah, oh, ah, oh, that's what was meant. That's what was being signified by this and that and the other. Uh, of course, people living in the days of Jephthah didn't have that advantage, but you and I do. And so we can derive, hopefully, some of the insights about our Messiah um, that are said in the Old Testament in some very, very unique ways. And what I want to do for you this morning is show you some of those unique ways that you and I can gain insight to our Deliverer. That is, the Deliverer with a capital D, as compared to the Deliverer with a small d. The Jephthahs, the Gideons, but this morning Jephthah in particular. But what I want us to grapple with and see is how Jephthah foreshadows, predicts, prepares us for and gives us insight to the Grand Deliverer. The one who would come and accomplish where the, all the others failed. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, that's the point of this story. The point of this story is how you and I can gain insights to our Savior. And I want to show you five. Five things that I think Jephthah foreshadows about the Savior we know as Jesus. Number one, or the first thing I would like for you to call to mind, is that Jephthah foreshadows that the ultimate deliverer would be one who is despised and rejected of men. Now, gang, later on in the Old Testament, when you get to the book of Isaiah chapter 53, you're going to find those very words, Isaiah 53, 3. You're going to find that the Messiah would be despised and rejected of men. But in the life of Jephthah, you get to see that illustrated. Because in the life of Jephthah, he was a man of very questionable birth. 
as the story tells us. There were questions as to his legitimacy. He was born under a cloud. He was an, a brother who was not wanted by the other brothers. He was the one that nobody wanted. He was, because of this non-normal birth of his, he had people all around him in his own family that despised him and ultimately ran him out of town. And he was held in all sorts of derision because, at least one of the reasons, because of this very questionable birth. Because Jephthah had been born under that cloud, when his father Gilead died, Jephthah was disinherited by his own kin. They were half-brothers, but his own kin ran him out of town. He was, he was cast out of his own home because he was defined and described as an outsider, called all sorts of profane names and accused of things falsely that were not true about him. And whatever those, their reasons were, that is, the reasons of, their, of his brothers, whatever reasons that they had, his own kin disowned him. Maybe it was because they, they deemed him a threat to their position. Maybe th they knew that his presence meant, that is, Jephthah's presence meant, there was going to be less of the share of the pie for them. Maybe they were going to lose out in terms of influence and ownership. Maybe there was going to be a diminished following if Jephthah stayed around. So they had to get rid of him. So they drove him out of his own home among his own kin. Now, guys, listen to this text that comes out of the Gospel of John. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. You know, gang... Um, Jesus was one who was disowned by his own kin as well. Um, the leaders of Israel, thinking that they uh, knew far more than he, and a tad threatened by his existence, decided that he needed to be run out of town. He was a rock over which they stumbled. Uh, in fact, that very sentence is found in Psalm 118. And Jesus picks up that Psalm 118 and applies it to himself in Matthew 21 and Mark 12 and several other places. He was a stone. He was a rock over which the rest of Israel stumbled. And whatever their reasons were, that is in, in Jesus, whatever their reasons were, they considered themselves to be the legitimate heirs. And so they cast off him whom they considered illegitimate because there was a cloud over his birth. There was questions as to who might be his real father. And what you see in Jephthah, you also see in the New Testament, Jephthah, because of a, of a cloud that shrouded their births, they were despised and rejected by their own kin and made to leave town. That's an insight, ladies and gentlemen, that Jephthah gives us long before the New Testament Jephthah, Jephthah ever shows up. Gang, there is a poignant little insight, I think, in verse 3. 
I, I want you to see it. When, then Jephthah fled from his brothers and dwelt in the land of Tob, and worthless men banded together with Jephthah and went out raiding with them. You know, folks, that's not the first time that something like that had happened in Israel. Or actually, that might be the first time, but it won't be the last time that something like that happened in Israel. Because the greatest hero that Israel ever knew experienced the same thing. David. First uh, Samuel chapter 22, in verse 2, when David was running from Saul, you recall, that worthless men banded with David. And David turned those worthless men into a formidable army. And it was with those worthless scoundrels that David ultimately defeated Saul. And then you read at the end of David's life that from that band of scoundrels, now they are men of might and valor and, and courage. They're giant killers. Because once they had gathered unto David, David took those scoundrels and turned them into something marvelous. And it seems like, ladies and gentlemen, that worthless scoundrel types are always attracted to the deliverer that God puts on the scene. You know, when men are convinced of their own lowest state, when they, when they have a sense of that there's a worthlessness to them, oh my friends, those were the very ones that felt comfortable in Jephthah's companionship and in David's and in Jesus's too, ladies and gentlemen. It was, it was Levi. It was the woman caught in adultery. It was lepers and blind people who always sought out and longed for and felt very comfortable in the presence of Jesus. And ladies and gentlemen, need I remind you that the New Testament says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble were called. No, no, no. It's the very opposite of those folks that always feel drawn to and comfortable with in the presence of this Deliverer. You know, ladies and gentlemen, don't you remember? Don't you remember when you were convinced that there was a certain worthlessness to you that you had nothing to offer? And the only thing that you wanted is somebody who would accept you on your own, uh, 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 as you were. And you heard this Gospel about Jesus Christ. And you found that there was... There was acceptance by Him. It's the kind of people, ladies and gentlemen, who don't bring any self-righteousness with them and no claims of moral superiority. It's, it's people who come with no pride, but who find joy and meaning and, and, and hope and acceptance and love in the presence of God's Deliverer. Just like these guys who found that Jephthah would accept them because they knew they had no worth in themselves. The same thing, ladies and gentlemen, is reflected in our Savior. It's not many wise, not many noble, not many big shots. No. It's people who are convinced that there's no righteousness in and of themselves. It's the people who know that they have to be done with any sense of human accomplishment or pride that felt comfortable in Jephthah's presence and feel comfortable in Jesus's. Gang, verse 3, I want to suggest to you is not so much an insight about these men. It's, a, it's an insight about the deliverer. First Jephthah, 
then David, and then Jesus. Because God's deliverer never turns anyone away because they have a bad record. God's deliverer is one who takes a rabble and turns them into a formidable army. He takes folks like us. Do you remember that? Do you remember when you were at the bottom of your barrel and the only place you knew to turn was Jesus Christ? And He's taken us and received us and turned us into something beautiful. That's the way, ladies and gentlemen, of God's deliverer. And I want to suggest it's one of those insights that you get about our Savior through the life of Jephthah. Thirdly, the war uh, arrives, and, or the crisis arrives, whatever, and the, the leaders of Israel go to Jephthah and want to um, bring him back as their commander. This outlaw, the one that had been uh, previously rejected, is now sought by those who had rejected him and sought as their savior, their deliverer. The one who is rejected in the past is now sought to be the, the one who will lead them to victory. The despised and the rejected is now sought after and desired and owned. Look at verse 6. When they, when they come to Jephthah, they, said, they, come, they, they come and they say, Come and be our commander, that we may fight against the people of Ammon. And do you know what Jephthah's response to that request is? His response is, uh-uh. They come to him and they approach him and they say, Be our commander. You know, lead us to victory and war. And Jephthah says, Nope, won't do that. I'm not going to come and be a military leader. That's not enough. And then verse 8, they come back and they say, okay, you can be head. And then they offer him to become almost a local dictator for the rest of his life. And it's only when that offer comes, ladies and gentlemen, that Jephthah responds affirmatively. It's only when they say, no, okay, not just commander, but you can have the whole ball of wax. It's all yours. And that's when Jephthah says, okay. Because men approach him, ladies and gentlemen, and we say, we'd like to have you, uh, they say to Jephthah, we'd like to have you on these terms. And Jephthah says, nope. Nope, I don't come on your terms. I only come on these terms. And the terms to which I respond affirmatively are terms which suggest that I am in control. Total control. If not, I'll not come at all. Gang, this Jephthah of ours, this New Testament Jephthah is also sought by some of the same people who had earlier ridiculed him. Some of you. And I want you to know, ladies and gentlemen, he will not settle for the role of simply fighting back your enemies. He must be Lord of all, or He will not be Lord at all. He refuses everything until offered total headship forever. He will be the highest loyalty of your life, or 
he will be nothing. My friends, you don't come to this Jephthah proclaiming your terms. He can only be had on his terms. You will either have him as the head and highest loyalty of your life forever, or, my friend, you will not have him at all. If you come and say, oh, Jesus, I'm in a mess now. Could you possibly get me out of this one? His answer will be, If that's all you want is somebody to fight your enemies for you, I'm not available. The only terms upon which I come are my terms. And the terms are Lord of all or not Lord at all. There's two other insights that I think Jephthah gives us. In verses 14 through 28, it's really interesting to see Jephthah correcting his the false claims of his enemies. You know, they say, well, that's our land. And Jephthah says, wait just a second. <laughs> this is not your land. And I, and I wouldn't want to suggest to you this, ladies and gentlemen, that one of the reasons that you see such animosity between um, the Palestinians in this day and the Israelites is because of this issue. They still think it's their land. And um, the land was given to Israel by Jehovah. Of course, a God they the God that they don't recognize. But that's, that's an aside. But it's interesting that Jephthah corrects them and says, you, you're wrong. We didn't violate your land. We went around, we went beside, but we didn't violate your land. No sirree, Bobby. You're wrong. You just be happy with the, with the land that your gods gave you. Okay? You find Jephthah, a man who knows his Bible, correcting the false claims of his enemies. And you know what? Jesus does the same thing. He arrives on the scene in his first publicly recorded uh, statement called the Sermon on the Mount. He looks at his audience and he says, You have heard it said, but I say unto you. You have heard it said, but no, 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 that's wrong. I say unto you, and this is right. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, he wasn't referring to the Old Testament being wrong. He was referring to the Pharisees' representation of the Old Testament. And he would look at, him, look at him in the eye and say, You have heard it said by those guys, but they're wrong. And I say unto you. And his whole ministry was going around smashing idols like he does in the, in the life of the rich young ruler. Gang, Jephthah knew his Bible. And because his faith was attached to the Word of God, he combated enemies. And I want to suggest that you see the same thing in our Savior. A Savior who understood what the truth was and battled in its name. He even calls it his meat and his drink. The meat and drink of my, of my whole life, says Jesus, is to do the will of my Father, which I find recorded in this book. Gang, um, one other thing. In verse 29, you find that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. And Jephthah accomplishes this great battle in the power and might of the Holy Spirit. Did you know that Jesus did that too? You, you see it in his, um, 
being equipped at his birth, I mean, at his baptism. And then you, you find a very, I mean, there's several statements like this. One in Hebrews chapter 9, where Jesus' uh, ministry is, is described like this. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God? There's this marvelous coordination between the Trinity and redemption is this Trinitarian activity where Jesus accomplishes what He accomplishes in the power of the Holy Spirit. Just like Jephthah. Nothing is accomplished unless it's accomplished in the power and the might of the Holy Spirit, ladies and gentlemen. Nothing is worth having unless the Holy Spirit has authored it and accomplished it and produced it. Now let me close like this. How does the Deliverer not Jephthah. How does the deliverer become my deliverer? Well, I'm suggesting to you, ladies and gentlemen, that he becomes your deliverer the same way that Jephthah became the head of Israel. First of all, men must humble themselves, swallowing their pride and go back to the, to the one who was despised and rejected and say, Would you please leave me? Can I have you as mine? And then, my friends, as I said earlier, it is only as one's head that Jesus will become our Savior. Gang, Jesus is not simply some mentor as if a nice WWJD hanging from your wrist is going to be enough. No, ladies and gentlemen, he's not simply a friend nor a mentor, and he will not be had on our terms. He will be had on his, and here are his terms. Lord of all, or not Lord at all. You know, gang, after um, Jephthah had gone through this long explanation as to why he was in the right and why they were in the wrong, if you look at verse 29, however, the king of the people of Ammon did not heed the words which Jephthah sent him. Are you going to do the same thing? You know, you find a bullheaded Ammonite king, and I look at people almost weakly, and I lay out before them what is the truth. And they're in no mood to listen to the truth. They're bullheaded. They're stubborn. And they insist on staying right where, they're, where they are. And we declare war against this deliverer. My friend, you'll never have this deliverer, that is Jesus, as yours. Until you come to the place where you realize he's in possession of truth and you're not. All those grounds on which you thought you could build your life, they're sinking sand, ladies and gentlemen. They're sinking sand. Have you realized that yet? Everything underneath you will collapse until you stand on a rock. I want you to notice also that when, um, when, the, when the battle is ultimately won, all the credit and all the praise Jephthah gives to the Lord God. What I'm suggesting, ladies and gentlemen, is this. 
If your understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ allows you to take any smidgen of credit for your own deliverance, you have the wrong gospel. If the gospel as you understand it allows you to point to your baptism or allows you to point to your uh, confirmation, if it allows you to point to your uh, goodness, if it allows you to point in any way to how you've uh, exercised faith or whatever, you got the wrong gospel, ladies and gentlemen. Because the gospel that is genuine is the gospel who's, that ultimately gives all glory to God. I am a child of God. Why? Because of the great work that He wrought in my soul, ladies and gentlemen. The reason that I see the gospel as clearly as I do is because He granted me eyes to see and ears to hear. And even the faith that I exercised, that too, ladies and gentlemen, is described by the New Testament as a gift. Any understanding of the gospel that you have that allows you to point to my faith or my baptism or my this or my that or my the other, ladies and gentlemen, it's a false understanding of the gospel. Jesus paid it all and all to Him I owe. Sin had left its crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. There's an interesting little statement in, in verse uh, 10 where um, we're told, excuse me, verse 11, that Jesus takes all these leaders of Gilead and he goes to Mizpah. And we get this sentence, and Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. The picture is, ladies and gentlemen, of a commitment. That they both arrive at this place, a place where God is worshipped, and they repeat, they exchange vows. And it's all done, sealed, and signed there at Mizpah. It's all said before the Lord at Mizpah. Negotiations are over. The deal is done. It's all wrapped up. It's signed, sealed, and delivered. There has been commitment made on the part of the sinner and on the part of the Savior. It is finished. It's all done, ladies and gentlemen. All done because of a commitment that God made. And then offers Himself freely in the person and work of Jesus Christ as a gift. Gang. Is that gift yours? Or will you continue in your bullheadedness thinking that the gospel really couldn't possibly say that? It does, ladies and gentlemen. Jesus will be Lord of all. Or he'll not be Lord at all. Let's pray. Our Father... I do pray that your people will find great joy in discovering that even tucked away back in Judges 11 is another scene of our Savior. That tucked there in this story that we've read dozens of times is a story that gives us opportunity to see the beautiful Savior. That Jesus Christ in all his beauty is portrayed on every page of this book. And here we get to see insights to who He is, 
what he has done and what others have done to him. Oh God, might we come to the place where we cease our warfare and strife and bow humbly, meekly, submissively, gladly, willingly to the one who insists that he will be Lord of all or he will not be Lord at all. Father, for those who are here today who have not yet received him as their King of Kings, might they see that they'll never have him on their terms. He must be had on his terms. We pray it all, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.